with me, Rich Terring. Welcome to another Rich Terring's Let's Square Theatre podcast. Uh, the the podcast starts filming again in on the 5th of February and goes right through to April, I think. So if you're free on a Monday and you're in London, why not book ahead to come and see those? We haven't got any guests confirmed yet, but there's some very exciting possibilities. Someone who might be using a metal detector might be coming along. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, and, um, yeah, we're, we're aiming high. Hopefully Brian blessed. I mean, you know, you never know. Uh, but take a punt because they're all worthwhile, even the ones that you might not have heard of before. I think especially those ones, personally. Um, and uh, my tour is called Oh Frig, I'm 50, and that is going all around the UK and in Ireland as well. It starts on February the 1st and goes through to June, I think. It's a show I'm very pleased with. It's possibly my last tour show for a little while. I'm not sure I'm going to do a stand-up show a new one this year, so uh, and and maybe not next, as I concentrate on doing some writing and making these podcasts work out. So do come along if you can. Go to richtang.com slash gigs or richtang.com slash ofrig slash tour, and you can see if I'm coming near to you. Some of them are sold out. Some of them are near to selling out. Some of them aren't that near to selling out, but it's worth booking ahead just to make me feel a bit better about myself uh, for the massive venues with not many people in them. Um, but I uh, hope to see you there, uh, and... Uh, do keep supporting us, uh, the podcast, either by drip, d.rip slash richard hyphen herring, or monthly badges, gofasterstripe.com slash badges, or just a one-off payment of badges, or buying anything from GoFasterStripe would be a fantastic help as well. So, um, thanks again. Hope you enjoy this new Rehearsal Per. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who is mourning the loss of his toddler who's just been eaten by Jan Ravens. It's Richard Herring! <laughs> Uh, good job I've got a spare. So uh, welcome to uh, the uh, show. It's uh, it's Monday. It's uh, 9-11. And it's Rahul Estefer. <laughs> I thought I'd mix it up a bit. You don't even get the reference. You don't get the reference. A, because you don't think you're from this country. And B, you're much too young to know where that comes from. Uh, but um, <laughs> hey, look, the nicest thing that's ever happened to me from, due to Rahul Estefer has happened... Uh, Thank you, that's good. Uh, I forgot that time, so well done. Uh, well, this is, this is a, there's a teacher in Korea who wants to uh, remain anonymous. I'm guessing he's in South Korea. That is my guess. Uh, because he's a teacher, he's teaching kids, uh, and he's, he's set them an essay question uh, of these eight-year-old kids of, uh, would you rather have a ham hand or an arm in red or something? And he sent me, uh, he sent me like loads of images of their responses. So because of me... Some children in South Korea have had to answer a philosophical question uh, in this way. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my glasses on. I, I, I spent, um, about two years ago, I spent £550 buying some um, uh, reading glasses from Boots Opticians. And they kind of tricked me into getting loads of extra stuff on them. And I can't use them. They're unusable because they've got, like, very focal. I could never use them. So I was in the supermarket the other day and bought these for £16. Uh, so... Don't go to Boots Opticians. Though I'm not, I didn't really check the correct, um, whether it was right, I just looked at a piece of paper and thought, yeah, that looks all right. So don't know if there are any opticians in, but I'm guessing this is probably damaging my eyesight to use these. <laughs> but now I can read. Sometimes we can imagine some body part changes. If I had to choose between a hand made out of ham or armpit that dispenses sun cream, I would be choose the armpit that dispenses sun cream more than that made out of ham for hand. First of all, it could be useful for block sun and protect our surface of body and wear with the armpit sun cream. I had experience I forget sun cream in summer, so if I had sun cream in armpit, I can use it wear in the summer. <laughs> Secondly, I think nowadays sun cream is very expensive to buy. Also, we often have to buy sun cream for a very expensive price, so we can save our own money if we don't buy sun cream for regularly. <laughs> Lastly, I would have sun cream armpit than ham hand. Ham hand has a very many downside features to use in life. <laughs> also, it smells so bad, I think so. If I should be, choose one of them, I would choose armpit sun cream more than hand with ham. That is a South Korean child. <laughs> Answer that question, I think, with more alacrity than any of the celebrities we've had. <laughs> to give you some balance, uh, here's the other side of the coin. If, uh, if you had to choose strong body parts with parts which would choose ham hand or armpit that dispenses sun cream, I think ham hand is best, so I'm going to introduce why I choose ham hand. First of all, I think ham hand is better than armpit that dispenses sun cream. In summer, if I had an armpit that dispenses sun cream, make me convenient, but my hand can make me full at any time when I am feel hungry. I can eat it whenever. <laughs> Secondly, armpit that dispenses sun cream make me angry. <laughs> it keeps me clean my armpit regularly so I can feel tired. <laughs> 
helps me keep, but when I feel dirty because it comes from my armpits. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Lastly, a handmade out of ham can be useful. When I get in a disaster, I can eat my ham hand to alive, and I don't have to put in my hand in winter, so I do not feel cold very well. <laughs> in conclusion, I like my body by myself, and I don't want to lose any of my body parts. <laughs> Honestly, the best. 16 quid. So, um, <laughs> can't see a thing now. Uh, so, that's thank you very much to that anonymous uh, teacher from uh, South Korea. I'm guessing it might be North Korea, in which case it's a much nicer country than I thought. But if they, well, imagine if they had, yeah. So, uh, a little callback. <laughs> so, uh, my guest this week is probably best known for his appearance on I Love Celebrity Big Brother. He loves it. <laughs> and that's mainly what we're going to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Joanne Hurry! Ladies and gentlemen, here he comes! Okay, yeah. I mean, sit down. Welcome. Put down your coat. Welcome. Thank you very actually, much. Uh, I just, I'm really relieved about something, which is that we've been given these chunky penis-like microphones, because I've had this weird experience about three years ago, don't worry, not about chunky penis-like microphones, <laughs> where I was about to go on stage to do something, and they insisted on putting one of those fucking head microphones oh, yeah. on me. You know how they, how they work? And I said to the technician I was about to go on, oh, if you force me to wear this, I'm going to feel like Madonna. And he, and he looked at me really intensely and he said, you should always feel like Madonna. <laughs> and now whenever I'm one of them, I get this really strong urge when I go on stage to basically just sing Papa Don't Preach and nothing else. <laughs> I'm also slightly worried because I feel like, because there's just been a really funny comedian on here and you know we have funny comedians, I feel like I'm basically the bit in comic relief where they go, and now the dead babies. I've heard through about depression and misery. We are, it's going to be fun. But, you know... And recovery. Many of people who come to my show are severely depressed. Not... You, not when they arrive, but by the end, by the end, <laughs> by the end of it. So uh, it will be, it will be fine. What, why do you love celebrity Big brother so much? Uh, and that's what I really want to talk to you about. Oh my god, it's it's impossible to answer. Uh, the series where there was like George Galloway, Pete Burns, yeah. the late. Pete Burns, yeah. uh, Michael Barrymore was literally the greatest thing that I think has ever happened in human history, basically. <laughs> Does anyone remember this? It's where Preston and Chantal were on. Because everyone remembers the kind of horrific moment when George Galloway impersonated, a, you know, shall I be the cat? But yeah. there was actually a much more revealing George Galloway <laughs> moment in that series. I let people remember this. You can see it on YouTube if you don't. So, um, Preston and Chantal were given a task where they had to dress up and pretend to be bankers, right? <clears throat> and they weren't allowed to let the other housemates have anything. But if they succeeded in the task, then all the housemates got, got loads of nice stuff, right? Anyway, they succeeded in the task, but Galloway just would not let go how angry he was about them having not given him something for a few hours. And that night, he gathered Tracy from Baywatch and Pete Burns and Michael Barrymore, and he said, I tell you this, Michael and Tracy and Pete, I will have my revenge on Preston and Chantal whether in this house or in the world outside. I don't want you to imagine being a member of parliament and pledging revenge on Chantal. <laughs> but you know, things that... haven't worked out for have they so uh, as well. Oh. Oh. Preston's one of my celebrity fans. He came to one of my gigs once. No way. What was he like? He was quite small. Oh, really? I was surprised. I was saying, he bought a DVD and I said, who should I put it to? And he said, Preston. I went and looked up and said, oh, it is you, yeah. Oh. Seemed like, you know, he's bought a DVD, he's a good, good bloke in my book. So, um, <laughs> so uh, lots of questions I want to... I've been reading uh, your book, Lost Connections, which will be available uh, in January when this goes out. And um, it's uh, I raised a lot of questions. My first question I want to ask that it's raised for me is, why did everyone... Uh, when did everyone stop wearing hats? Because you mentioned somewhere in there about everyone having hats in the old days. Why do you think everyone stopped wearing hats? I don't think that's in my book. It is in there. Is I it? was reading your book, and it's a very throwaway comment. Everyone wearing hats? <laughs> yeah. In the old days, Oh, is this when I went to an Amish village? Yeah, no, it's, there's, a, there's a bit where you're looking at a picture, and there's everyone's wearing hats. I think it's in your book. You're the only, I'm, the only I'm book I'm fairly ever. confident it's not in my book. Anyway, okay. Why, why, did question, everyone, but... why did everyone stop wearing hats? I'll find I, it for you. I don't... No. I'll I tell you, I don't, I'm not interested in the real answer. I just wonder, well, you know, in the 1920s, everyone wore hats. This reminds me of an incredibly stressful experience I had when I went to my, <laughs> when I went to my Cambridge interview. And they say, you know, like, I was planning to do um, politics, uh, social and political science. And they say to you beforehand, oh, right, they could ask some, like, left-field questions, yeah. right? And I've got a slightly weirdly spelt name. Uh, and they were calling for John Harris to come forward. And I thought, well, that's obviously me, because <laughs> my name is so often mispronounced. So I went through, and the first question they asked me was, will people ever live on Mars? 
And I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. And, I thought, and they looked kind of puzzled and they said, uh, this went on for a few minutes and then they said, if we had a massive pile of earwax on this table, <laughs> yeah. how would you dissolve it? These are good questions. I'm having both of these. And I was like, I'd get some like acid or something. <laughs> and then they were like, well, why do you want to study chemistry? And I was like, I don't. I really fucking don't. <laughs> and then, yeah. So anyway, this was a bit like that. I'm pretty sure there's no hat-based okay. I think you mentioned it very briefly. In my book, Lost Connection. Very briefly, very briefly. Oh. And the answer is, I think, because people had to start getting inside cars. Oh. Brilliant. You should write a book about this, Richard. Thank you, I will. Uh, the next question I want to ask you <laughs> that's come out of your book about depression is what are the relative mer merits of fried chicken franchises? Because you claim that you can give the relative merits of different fried chicken. So I became quite fat when I was in my 20s. It was the side effect of two things, antidepressants and Nando's, basically. And I consumed enormous... In the future, if chickens ever evolve to the point where they can write histories, I will be like the Hitler figure in their, in their mythology. Um, so my favourite was probably Tennessee Fried Chicken, not because the chicken was better, it probably isn't, but because their logo is a chicken eating a chicken leg and beaming, yeah. so it's kind of like cannibal chicken. Yeah, it's good. And actually, who would have thought cannibalism would be such an inducement to eat? But somehow, every time I saw that chicken, I'd be like, fuck yeah, give me some chicken wings. If, it's, if the chicken is good enough for a chicken to eat it, then it's got to be really good. Exactly. Uh, was it its own leg? Did it have legs as well? Or was it possible that it was eating its own legs? No, it has legs. Okay. It has legs. <laughs> Actually, its legs were much smaller and more spindly. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to take... There was a Texas fried chicken on the Goldhawk Road, which oh. I think has now changed to a different uh, brand, but it's still a chicken shop. Oh. It had one plastic table with two chairs, you know, fixed to it. And I always thought it would be quite a bold move to go on a first date to that, <laughs> to that as the restaurant. Get someone to dress up and then say, this is where we're going, and then... I reckon if they went for it, that'd be quite a good person to be in a relationship with. But also, conversely, they might be quite a good person to be in a relationship with that you put off. Um, I've, I'm actually about to go on a fast food pilgrimage. I don't know, people, some of the older people in the audience might remember that there was one something called McPizza, where you could go into McDonald's and buy a pizza, which was the, it was the greatest nine-month period in human history. <laughs> and then it stopped abruptly, and I can still remember going to McDonald's and saying, I have a McPizza, and them saying, you can't have one. I was like, when can I have it again? And they were like, never. Wow. But my nephew, my youngest nephew, Ben, discovered that in Ohio, there is still a place that does McPizza. So when we're going to the US next week, we are going to make a pilgrimage Fantastic. and buy a McPizza. It will be a profound and moving experience that is me. good. You talk about in the book also which, about um, getting a Christmas card from the staff of uh, KFC. This was a real low point in my life. <laughs> it, was, um, <clears throat> it was actually in one of the metaphors for depression in the book so that is, is partly about this. It was Christmas Eve. It must have been 2009. I used to live at the end of Brick Lane. And I remember going into the KFC in the afternoon ordering something. And one of the people who worked there said, Johan, we're so glad you're here. And they took out this fucking massive Christmas card that everyone who worked in that branch of KFC had written like little personal messages in. And I was like, okay, I need to stop. I need to stop now. <laughs> but this is a bad sign. But then that's awful because those people loved you so much and then you stopped I coming. I shunned them. After they'd given you that lovely yeah, gesture. I know. It's a they weird killed thing. me with their love. Uh, but I used to get that. I used to get like from Pizza Hut, I used to get uh, uh, letters addressed to the pizza lover. I thought, you know, <laughs> I, might, I don't love it, man. I just uh, order it occasionally. And like you used to ring up and then they go, is that, is that Richard... Herring, they would say your name because you'd ordered before, and that put me off because right, they right. sort of knew what you liked. It's like an NSA for pizza. Yeah, it's a horrible it's affair. Yeah. Anyway, we were, look, I'm being flippant by talking about things that aren't that important in your book, but uh, that, I, I like that. But I, it's a good start. I thought I had a good vomit story um, because I was once sick on my own diarrhea in Ipswich. Wow. Uh, and uh, I thought that was a pretty good vomit story, but your vomit story is uh, better. Uh, the, the vomit story that starts this book off. Which there was, is... So I was kind of haunted by this memory and I just could not figure out all the... the I wrote this book over three years and I went to loads of different places. But there was this memory that kept really staying with me and I, I only really understood why very late in writing the book. So <clears throat> in 2011, I was in Vietnam doing some research for a different book that I hadn't written, that I'm still in the process of writing. And I had to track down survivors of the, the American attack on Vietnam. And one day I was in um, Hanoi and I, and I bought an apple from the side of the road. It was a big red apple. And I took it back to the hotel and I bit into it and it tasted just really chemically, like the, how I imagined food would take, uh, taste after a nuclear war in like those films in the 80s. Uh, but I was so lazy I couldn't be bothered going out and there are no deliveries in Hanoi, who knew? Uh, so I ate half of it. Anyway, I got horribly sick. Um, uh, and I was just like 
exploding everywhere for like three days. But I thought, you know, I've had food poisoning before I lived on fried chicken in East London for 10 years. So I, can, I know how this E. coli rodeo goes. And, and it got to three days and I thought I was still really ill, but I thought, look, I've got to go and interview people who don't have that much more time in Vietnam. So Huang, my, my fixer and translator, we just drove, it was about six hours into the countryside. He'd lined up for me to interview various people I've been trying to track down. And there was this old woman, who, really old woman, who was the only person from her village who had survived um, the, the, uh, with her kids, the, the bomb, the American war. <clears throat> and while she was speaking, she was telling this very moving story, I started to feel this really weird sensation, like the room like spinning. And then I just started to just fucking explode all over this poor Vietnamese woman's house. And I'm like lying there, I've got this on tape, I'm like lying there, like, oh, like the sound effects are horrendous. And um, she said to Huang, my fixer, he's really sick, you've got to take him to the hospital. And I was like, no, just take me back to the hotel, take me back, it'll be fine, just drive back. And he was like, Johan, this is the only woman who survived nine years of war in Vietnam. I'm going to listen to her health advice over yours. So they took me to this hospital. It was like this tiny little hospital where I was the only European they'd ever treated. And when I went out, I was feeling like the most extreme nausea I've ever felt, even more than Tennessee fried chicken had given me on many occasions. <laughs> and um, I kept saying to the doctors through Huang, give me something for the nausea. And the doctor interrupted me and he said something. So he stayed with me. He said, you need your nausea. It's a message and it's telling us something. We need to listen to that message. Anyway, it turned out what happened is my, because I hadn't absorbed any liquids for like three days, my kidneys, because I'd been, you can imagine what had been happening to them, um, <laughs> I, I had, I had um, not absorbed any water, so it was basically like I'd been in the desert. And the doctor said, I asked him a few days later, if, if he had just driven me back to Hanoi, what would have happened? He would have said, oh, you would have died on the journey. You were so dehydrated. And that really stayed with me because one of the reasons why I started writing this book and why I started investigating this is because there were two kind of mysteries that were really troubling me and I couldn't find the answers for them in what I was looking at. So I had started taking antidepressants when I was a teenager. And I still remember the first day I took my first antidepressant. It was not that far from where we are now. And I remember this sensation of, of swallowing it and feeling this tremendous relief. I'd gone to the doctor and I'd said, for really as long as I could remember, I'd had this feeling like kind of pain was leaking out of me. I didn't understand why. And my doctor told me a story that was a tremendous relief. He basically said, some people just naturally lack this chemical called serotonin. You're clearly one of them. Take these drugs, they boost your serotonin levels back to normal and you'll feel okay. And I thought, great, this is amazing. It was an explanation, it was a story, and I did actually feel much better. The moment I took the drug, I felt better, which obviously can't be a chemical effect, but I felt immediately better for several months. And that was just before I went to university, and then I went, and a few months later, this, I felt fantastic for a few months, and then this pain started to seep back in. And so I went back to the doctor, he said, oh, clearly we just haven't given you a big enough dose. He gave me, I think, 20 milligrams, went to 30 milligrams. And the same thing happened, I felt much better. I went back a few months later, because the pain came back, and this kept going on until I was on 80 milligrams, which is the highest you're legally allowed to have in Britain. And the thing that, there were two things that puzzled me, right? It was, I'd been on antidepressants with a few breaks for 13 years. One was, why am I still depressed? Because I'm, I've been told this story, I'm doing everything I've been told and I still felt in a lot of pain. The second was, why are there so many other people like me, right? If you look at the figures, one in 11 people in Britain are taking antidepressants and depression has actually risen. 108% uh, increase since 2006. So you think about, think about this room, I can't see how many people are because you're swaddled in darkness, but you know, and it's probably higher because you're the kind of people who come to hear it's Richard Herring. Six, 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 six or seven hundred. So one in 11 people. <laughs> so you're talking about extraordinary increases all over the Western world. One in four middle-aged women in the United States are taking antidepressants at any given time, right? It's one in three in France. So I wanted to understand and what's really going on with all these people? And I think, uh, you know, so I ended up going to loads of different places, over 40,000 miles from, you know, an Amish village in Indiana where they had this different way of thinking about depression to a, a Berlin housing project where they taught me something really important to, to a, a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if it would make people feel better, to a, a, hosp a hospital in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that helped with depression. And I think the main thing I realised is the story we've been told is not true. I've been told all my life basically two things about depression. Either it's all in your head, meaning it's made up, it's your weak, kind of Katie Hopkins stuff, 
or it's all in your head, meaning it's a chemical imbalance. And what I learned is the evidence is clear. Actually, it's not in our heads. It's not the causes of depression, anxiety are not mostly in our heads. It's mostly in the way we're living. And actually the solutions lie in changing the way we're living. And there's seven very targeted ways that we can change the way we're living that can really deal with this crisis. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting book. I'm halfway through it, as I usually am, uh, in, when I've got a book to read. Uh, and uh, no, it's very fascinating um, because I mean, it's sort of, feels like a lot of it feels like common sense and that you know you well you you sort of think you're well like, i accept the doctors must be telling me the truth and then you sort of go well let's think about whether they are telling us the truth and if you look at if you look at the the actual statistics and the actual ex experiments and the tests that were done on these depressants they, they don't really come out to make that much difference but it's also sort of common sense to say well obviously like people are depressed for lots of reasons because of their life. So it's events in their life as much as or more than maybe than anything that's going wrong inside your body or your head. I mean, you're not talking for everyone, right? I think you would agree that there are different types of depression. Yeah, so, it, there, so there are nine causes of depression, scientifically proven causes of depression, two of which are biological, which I can talk about if you want. But those biological things interact with the ways we live. It's not they're totally separate and there's a different group of people who are affected by them. They all interact. So I'll give you an example that I think a lot of people in the audience might connect with, a lot of people listening to this might connect with, but it kind of... And again, it can seem obvious and yet... it we're so blinded to it, and particularly the solution. So in Philadelphia, I, got uh, I spent a lot of time with a guy called Joe. He works in a paint shop. So you walk into Joe's paint shop. He'll say, hello, sir, madam, how can I help you? You pick out the shade of paint that you want. His job is to activate a little machine that shakes that paint, give it to you, take your credit card or your cash, and say, thank you, sir. And then the next person walks in. He does that all day, every day. And Joe, when I talked to him, was really depressed, he would oscillate. He was extremely grateful he had a job. He said he knew a lot of people with worse jobs. And he said, every day, all through my work, I think, I'm making no difference. I can't bear this. No one even cares what I'm doing. Um, and this is what I'm gonna do for the next 40 years, until I die, or until I retire. Um, and he would get, at the, in, when he, it was a kind of internal deadening going on. And what's interesting, if you look at the polling on this, um, so Gallup did the most detailed study of how people feel about their work. 13% of people are what they call, identified as engaged with their work. They enjoy it, they look forward to it starting, you know, they, they look forward to it, they, they really love it. 63% of people are what they call sleepwalking through their work. They don't hate it, but they don't like it. It's something they do because they have to. And 23% fucking hate their jobs, hate them, they're called, uh, it was highly disengaged, deliberately sabotaging their work a lot of the time, they really load them. So you think about that, you think about Joe's story, 87% of us can identify a fair bit with, with Joe's story. Almost twice as many people hate their jobs in our culture as love their jobs. And what I wanted to understand was, is there any evidence about whether this is, Joe thought this was making him depressed, is there any evidence about this? And this is fascinating, <clears throat> study that happened here in Britain actually in the 70s. So when you're comparing different jobs and where they make people depressed, it's really difficult because if you compare like a nurse to, I don't know, an accountant, well a nurse sees more death, you know, an accountant, it's, it's very difficult to compare. But this guy called Michael Marmot, who's a professor, looked at Whitehall, the British civil service, and he said, well okay, think about the British civil service, there's big differentials between, you know, the guy at the top, the guy at the bottom, but no one's seeing death every day, no one's going home to a damp home. This is like a lab where we can study how work affects your health. And the first study they did was something where people said to them, why are you even bothering to do this? It's so obvious what the answer will be. They wanted to see who in the, there were at that time 19 layers to the civil service, who in, that, who in those layers is most likely to have a heart attack? And people said, why are you even bothering? Obviously, the guy at the top is going to be most likely to have a heart attack. He's got the most stressful job. He's got the most responsibility. When they got the results, the exact opposite was the case. The lower you went, the more likely you were to have a heart attack. And if you were at the bottom, you were four times more likely to have a heart attack than the guy at the top. The same was true of depression. There's then lots of evidence about this, but what Michael showed is that what stresses you about your work is not the responsibility, it's two things. One of them is a lack of control. If you don't have control over your work, if you don't feel you're choosing some of it, you are very vulnerable to becoming depressed. The other is, <clears throat> if you feel there's an imbalance between the effort you put in and the rewards you get, if you feel that no one is noticing what you do. Now the reason I mention this in relation, so there's really strong evidence, the way we work is making us depressed. 
And there's a solution to this, right? So in Baltimore, I spent some time with these amazing people called um, Baltimore Bicycle Works, who are part of this movement. So one of the people who led it, Meredith Keogh, I've got to make sure I say her name right, because I keep saying Meredith Kirchner, by mistake, it was that person who was murdered. Who, it's not Meredith Kirchner. Meredith Keogh. Uh, so she used to wake up, every, she did a kind of office job, and every Sunday night she felt sick with anxiety thinking about the next day's work. Wasn't that her boss was a monster, wasn't that he was Harvey Weinstein, it wasn't that they were terrible people, but it was just she couldn't bear the meaninglessness of it, the, the lack of, you know, just feeling she was making a difference in the world. And her uh, then-boyfriend, now husband, Josh, had had this idea. Josh worked in a bike shop. And in the US, I think in Britain as well, but I don't know as well. In Britain, in the US, bike shops are basically, you've got a boss at the top, and then you've got lots of insecure labor. You don't even really have contracts. You don't really have like guaranteed holidays. You basically, you could be fired at any moment. It's a low wage and there's no progress up, right? And Josh and his friends were working in this bike shop. And they had this, and they were, a lot of them were really depressed and anxious. And they began to think, is our work causing this? And they had this thought. They just thought, what does our boss actually do? Again, the boss is not like a monster. He was actually quite a nice person. They said, well, we fix all the bikes, right? We do all the work. What would happen if we just set up a bike shop and instead of him being the boss, we were all the boss? So they set up this bike shop, which was a cooperative, where they all run it together. There's nine of them. I think there were six at the time, there's nine now. They run it together, they make the decisions democratically. If there's a job that's boring, they share it out between them. If someone has an idea, they feel it's theirs, they feel they're a tribe. And what was really interesting talking to them is all of them found in this different work environment, the depression and anxiety they had felt went away. Now you think that's a, in some ways quite a subtle change. They were fixing bikes before, they're fixing bikes now. But they don't feel controlled and humiliated. And this really led me, along with lots of other things in the book, to thinking about antidepressants very differently. So we've been told that antidepressants are a chemical thing in our culture. But one of the most interesting people I spoke to is a South African psychiatrist called Derek Sommerfeld. And Derek was involved in this research when they introduced antidepressants into Cambodia not that long ago. And in Cambodia, he, they were basically explaining what depression and antidepressants are. And at first, they weren't, the translation wasn't totally obvious. There isn't an obvious word in Khmer for depression. But then they said, oh, well, we've got a word that means like downheartedness. And they said, all right, I think we think that's the same thing. And then they explained antidepressants. And they said, oh, we don't need those. We've already got antidepressants. And Derek thought they were going to talk about like some herbal thing. And he said, well, tell me what you mean. And they said, okay, well, we'll tell you about a guy who was depressed. There was a guy who he worked in the uh, rice fields and one day he stood on a landmine that was left over from the American war and his leg was blown off. And we gave him an artificial leg, but he had to still work in this field. He was in a lot of physical pain. It was obviously traumatic to be working in this field where you'd blown up. And he just cried all day, didn't want to get out of bed. Is that depression? And it's like, yeah, that's depression. And so, so we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what did you do? They said, well, we figured out that what was making him feel really bad. And we thought, well, if we bought him a cow, he could be a dairy farmer, and then he'd be working differently, he wouldn't be in this place that'd be so terrible, he wouldn't be in so much pain because you can do it while sitting, and then he won't feel so depressed. So we bought him a cow. So you see, doctor, a cow, that's an antidepressant, right? And that sounds almost stupid to us, but their approach was, depression is largely caused by problems with the way we're living, so let's solve the problem for how the individual is living or how the group is living, and that will make people less depressed. It's a very different way of thinking about depression to what we've been given for the last 30 years. Yeah, well, you sort of talk about the way that antidepressants are just handed out and no one's talking about the, the reasons why anyone's depressed. So when you went for antidepressants, no one asked you why you were depressed or what, what you thought you, where you thought your depression came from. Um, but also that there's this element where, you know, you talk about this old... Uh, the old days where they, they had a stick with some metal on it and they held it over people and that seemed to cure them, but there was obviously no medicine behind it, but people just believed it worked and so it worked for a little while. And you, you're sort of arguing basically the antidepressants are, are this sort of same placebo effect. There's a, a debate, about, there's a debate yeah. about this. A significant part of it is placebo. Not all, we don't sure. know if all of it is. So one of the ways best we know to know about chemical antidepressants is from this guy called Irving Kirsch, I got to know. He's a professor at Harvard. He's basically the world's leading expert in, in this. And he, he was, um, in addition to being a leading academic expert, he was a psychologist who treated people. And in the 90s, he prescribed antidepressants, chemical antidepressants. He defended them in writing. And he knew the published scientific evidence, which is that if you look at the studies, about 70% of people who take chemical antidepressants get better, which is really a significant amount. 
And he wanted to prove this and explore some different aspects of it. So he started looking at the, the studies, the scientific studies into this, and he noticed something, which is basically almost all the studies are funded by the drug companies who obviously profit from these drugs, and almost all of them publish very selectively their studies. So actually, it's very hard to figure out what's going on, because if you're a drug company, there was one instance where the drug company uh, done a trial on, I think it was 256 people, and they'd only published the results for 27 of them, who happened to be the 27 for whom it worked. And it's like, well, what's go how do we figure out what genuinely how many people are being helped? So he had this idea, this kind of, um, actually someone suggested to him, because basically what the drug companies have been doing was a bit like when you take selfies for Tinder, you take like 30 pictures, you discard the 29 where you look double-chinned, and then you use the one where you look good. But he figured out when you, when you want to bring a drug to market in the US, you have to apply to the FDA, the, Federal, the Food and Drug Administration. And by law, you have to give them all your studies, right? It's like an evil Tinder where you had to show every picture where you look really minging, right? And he, he, so he had, did something no one had done before. He put in a freedom of information request to get all the data, including the stuff they don't want us to see. And what he found really shocked him and changed his mind. So the best evidence we have is 65 to 80% of people using antidepressants are depressed again within a year. And the people who do feel better is a relatively small improvement. Now it's important to say 65 to 80% is not 100%. There are people who are being helped. I don't want to take away anything from anyone who's being helped. But this thing that has dominated the conversation, that has been the one thing we offer people, can't be the, I thought I was a freak for being still depressed when I was on antidepressants. Actually, I was totally typical. Sure. And there's also, I think you made the point that people might get better anyway, so the, 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 the studies have to take into account that you might just, exactly. at so, time that, down yeah. the line, you might not be depressed anymore. Exactly, so the 65 to 80% yeah. is going to overstate because obviously yeah. some people naturally recover. Yeah. It'd be like if you give people, loads of people flu remedies and you went back three weeks later, it looked like they'd cured everyone because everyone gets over a flu, but actually you'd be overestimating the amount sure. that's due to the drug. But, you know, I think it's interesting that it's very difficult with depression. I was talking about with this with Rachel Paris in a previous... Um, uh, show and she was very unhappy and how do you quantify your own depression how do I know when I've been sad that that's any worse than when you were sad you know am I just dealing with it or just pushing it down or you know it's very difficult to know isn't it because we don't know how anyone else feels when they're depressed so and you make that point and when I think about the times when I've been depressed it's when I've been isolated it's when I'm feeling useless it's when I'm feeling undervalued and and you, you sort of go back to this as, as a tribe as human beings on the savannah we were a little tribe we all had our uses within that tribe and we all lived in a you know a, a natural environment and now we all live in this unfair, unequal society, I mean, increasingly becoming unequal. So, I mean, you talk about gorillas and bonobos monkeys a lot, which I've always, I always love talking about. I never have, know how to say it, but the bonobos monkeys are monkeys that just have sex with each other a lot, so that's why I Lesbian like Lesbian group sex, yeah. to be specific. Well, that's my favourite kind yeah. of, <laughs> of monkey porn, if I have to go for the monkey porn. But, you know, the, the, in in that kind of strata of guerrilla society certainly you know the, the stress comes from being low down and there being a, a top dog and you being the low dog and, and that's sort of what's happening within society and that we're being made to feel useless or we're made to feel isolated or alone so a lot of depression is surely caused by that when I think about when I think about my own experiences with being unhappy and I don't know if it's depression or not though that really resonated with me that you were talking about this you know, being in a house on your own, in a too big house on your own and not not really communicating with other people. We're not really communicating as... I might, when I, my dad came to stay in London, he lives in Cheddar in Somerset and um, we're walking down the Uxbridge Road in Shepherd's Bush and my dad, and a, you know, a, a, a guy we don't know walks past us and my dad says, hello. And I went, dad, you can't do that. <laughs> and I, and I, I treated my dad as if he was insane for talking to a stranger in London. Whereas, of course, from his point of view, why would you not just say hello to people? But we got so conditioned within London to not talk to each other that we don't really even communicate with each other. It reminds me, of, I think, one of the most moving experiences I had for the book. So a lot of the book is about, you know, the science, but a lot of it is about these stories of people. And there's one place I went to that I think really illustrates this. That, that really helped me to think about this so differently. In the summer of 2011, a woman called Nuria Cengiz, who was a Turkish immigrant to Germany, uh, lived on a big housing, a council estate in, um, in the middle of Berlin, and she put a sign in her window. The sign said something like, I've lived here for 30 years, I got my eviction notice today, 
So next Wednesday, before they evict me, I'm going to kill myself. That's all the sign said. No one knew her. It was a big, anonymous council estate. And people walked past. Nuria lived on the ground floor. And people were like, oh. So they tried to knock on the door and they said, do you need any help? She said, no, I don't want your help. Shut the door in their face. And this housing project, council estate, is in a slightly weird place. It's basically it's a place called Cotty. And when they threw up the Berlin Wall in 1961, they did it a bit chaotically. And it was the bit of West Berlin that like jutted into East Berlin. So you picture it like a tooth. But when the wall came down, so, so when the wall was there, it was like no one wanted to live there because that would have been the front line if the Soviets had invaded. But when the wall came down, it's suddenly prime real estate in the middle of Berlin. So on this council estate, housing rental costs have massively gone up. And loads of people looked at this and they identified with her. And there were a few people, there were a lot of construction workers who lived there and some architecture students. And they basically, there's this big thoroughfare going through the housing project. And they basically said to each other, well, look, if we just blocked the road for a day and we wheel Nuria out and we put her in the middle of it and we have a few signs, the media will come and there'll be a bit of a fuss and they'll probably let her stay. So they persuaded Nuria, who was like, well, I'm going to fucking kill myself anyway, who cares? And they wheel her out and there is a big fuss and the media do come. And it gets to the end of the day and the police basically said, okay, you've had your fun, guys take it all down, go home. And the people who lived there said, well, hang on a minute, you haven't told her she can stay. And actually, we all want a rent freeze because we're sick of paying more and more rent. And what happened is the, the, they, they built this little barricade in the street. And what happened is um, Tanya, who lived on the, at the top, one of the women who lived there, ha had a klaxon in her flat, you know, those things that make a really loud noise. She went up and got it, and what they did is they just impromptu, they just drew up a uh, timetable, and they said, we're going to man this barricade, we'll all take turns, and if the police come to dismantle it, before we've got the guarantee that our rent's going to be frozen and Nuria can stay, we're, you know, well around the klaxon, and we'll all come down and protect it. So what happened is completely random people started signing up to do the shifts together. And this was an area where, which had been basically polarised between three groups, like uh, Muslims, quite religious Muslims, gay people and punks. So who'd kind of all looked at each other with a little bit of mis misapprehension and not knowing each other and puzzlement. Uh, Nuria got put on the night shift with Tanya. Tanya is a punk uh, who uh, wears a miniskirt even in Berlin winters, which gives you some sense of how hardcore she is. And they sat there and at first they just sat there and didn't speak to each other. They were like, what have we got to talk to each other about? But as the nights went on, they started to talk and they realised they had both been runaways to Kreuzberg, to, to Kotti. Um, Nuria had come when she was 17. Uh, she left her husband in Turkey because she was, came with their two kids to work and raise enough money for his plane ticket. And she was there and, and, and Tanya had run away from this kind of middle class home where she was treated really badly and she'd been a squatter when she was 14. They'd both been girls when they came here. And, and Tanya actually got pregnant soon after she came. She was on her own. She was 15 in this squat where no one was helping her when she first came. And, and they both kind of realised, oh, we've got this thing in common. Actually, Nuria started to tell Tanya something she'd never told anyone before, that her husband, when she sent for him, she'd always told people that she found out he died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of TB, uh, which is a disease of poverty. She's really ashamed of it. Anyway, this was happening all over Cotty, that these people... So there was a, a young Turkish hip-hop fan with, a, like, an elderly, grumpy, white, German communist. This complete mixture of people, and they were discovering how much they had in common. One day, um, someone turned up... Uh, there, there was this... Opposite the housing project, there's this gay club called Sudblock, which was run by this guy called Richard, who originally wanted to call it Cafe Anal, which, again, gives you a sense of the kind of club it is. And when it had been opened, their windows had been smashed, that you can imagine a lot of um, young Muslims had said, we don't want this around here and the gay club because that time the barricade was quite limited said have all our furniture have all the meetings in our club have it free do it all here and people were like look we're not going to get women in hijabs and burqas to come and sit in front of a fisting poster um, but actually everyone started going to these meetings they started getting to know each other one day a guy turned up called Tunkai he was Tunkai's in his early 50s and he's obviously um, has cognitive difficulties um, and he offered to like clean things and he quickly, he's very warm and very kind and very sweet. And after a while, people, he'd obviously been living homeless. They said, well, why don't you just stay here? They built this kind of permanent encampment in the road. Why don't you stay here? They put a bed for him and he was beloved by everyone. One day the police came as they did every now and then to do a little search and they were arguing and, and Tunkai hates people arguing so he tried to hug them and they thought he was attacking them. So the, they, they, they arrested him and that's when people discovered that Tunkai had actually been a psychiatric patient detained for 20 years and he'd, he'd run away and he'd been living homeless for a few months before he came to Cotty. And they took him back to this psychiatric hospital where he'd been kept in this cell. 
And suddenly everyone in this, in Koti, turned into like a free Tunkai movement. So suddenly like a hundred people and the psychiatrists were just completely, what the fuck is this? There were like all these Muslims and gay people and punks saying, <laughs> give Tunkai back to us, he's ours, he belongs with us. And eventually they got, they got him released. Anyway, this movement kept building, there were difficult moments. Eventually what they got was a rent freeze they, they, they actually managed to get enough, the largest number of signatures in, in this history of Berlin for a referendum for a citywide rent freeze and then the city government gave in. But when I went to speak to Nuria, and I, I keep going back there and I think they think I'm crazy because I just turn up and cry every few months because I find it so moving. Nuria said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighbourhood, but I gained so much more than a flat. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all alone and I, all along and I never knew. There was a woman called Neriman, who another Turkish German woman. She said to me, when I grew up in Turkey, I learned that what you called home was our village. And then I came to Germany and I learned that what you're meant to call home is just your flat, your four walls. And if you're lucky, you've got a family. That's your home. And, and then this protest began and we all got to know each other and I began to think this whole place was my home. And she said, I realize now, for the 35 years I've been living in the West, I had been homeless. And I, it made me think a lot about the way we live. We live such atomized lives. We live so separated from each other. No human society has ever tried to do this. And there's loads of evidence. Professor John Cassiopo, who's the world's leading expert on loneliness, I interviewed him a lot. He did this, I'll give you one example, it really goes to what you're saying, Rich. The, I did a very simple study to say you were taking part in the study. You're given a beeper. This was in the 90s, so it would have been a beeper. And you were given like little uh, things to spit in, like tubes. You have to go through day. Every now and then you'll get a random beep. You have to spit in the tube. And what they wanted to and you have to write down how lonely you feel on a scale of one to ten. What they wanted to test was when, you, when you're stressed, your saliva is flooded with something called cortisol. They wanted to test how stressful is it to be lonely. What they found was being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger in the street. If you think about exactly what you say, the circumstances where we evolved, we evolved to live in participative tribes. And in those circumstances, we weren't stronger than the, people, than the other animals in our environment. What we had is we could band together. And in that environment on the savannas of Africa, if you were cut off from your group, you felt anxious and depressed for a really fucking good reason. You were about to die, right? You were in terrible danger. Those are our evolved impulses. We need to feel connected. And if we don't, all our systems go haywire. It's like a bee trying to live without a hive. And we have been the first human society that's tried to live effectively without tribes. And it's making us really unwell. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big thing. Uh, it's, well, it's a big thing to say, but then it's the, it's the you know, you talk about possessions. We've, we're, we're, you know, we've become very... Uh, fixated on you know capitalism and money and having possessions and these things you know are, are, will not make us happy that you however however much I, I guess i've seen this like with comedians who are probably kind of uh super examples of ridiculous humanity uh, <laughs> and uh, you know you you're striving for something you think if i get that thing i'll be happy and they get the you know you get the fame or you get the money or you get the possessions and you're still not happy and you go, oh, so I must. You either push for more or you push for less. But how do you, how do we overcome the fact society has become, you know, cities have become these, these places where everyone is not connected and and people are, you know, very driven by money. Are we going to overthrow capitalism to make people non-depressed? So remind me to come back to the consumerism thing. I mean, yeah. that's a really important part of it. But there's actually an experiment very near here that's been trying to solve that, that question. So there's a place called the Bromley by Bow Centre in East London. And the doctor there, wonderful man, Sam Everington, was just sick of seeing people come in who were really depressed and just giving them drugs and sending them out again. It's not that he's against chemical antidepressants, he's not, but he just thought we're n this is not right. And so they did this experiment. It's a really simple experiment. They call it social prescribing. What happens, I'll give you an example, a woman, Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know, who, who was one of the people who took part in this. Lisa was really depressed. She'd spent seven years basically hiding in her bed after she'd had some really bad times. And Sam said to her, what I'd like you to do, I'm going to prescribe you to take part in a group. It's a really simple group. We've given you a patch of land. It was called Dogshit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. What we want you to do is take this patch of land and make it beautiful with these 10 other depressed people. Just 
Whatever you can do, just make it beautiful. So this group of depressed people get together and they start learning about gardening, something none of them knew anything about. And they're learning and they're trying. And, they, and what's interesting is, often what we do with depressed and anxious people is we sit them down and we get them to talk about their depression and their anxiety, which often is the last thing they want to talk about. What this gave them was a way of talking about something else, something constructive, something beautiful. And again, there was this rather cotty-like story of the transformation that happened in that group. And there's been studies of similar programs in Norway that have found they're twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. But you asked about consumerism. I think this is really important. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about getting stuff, how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? You go back to Confucius and so on. Um, but weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until a guy I got to know, a guy called Professor Tim Casso, who's based at the University of Illinois, who did these really important studies that basically there are two things that can motivate you in life, but you could, this is really crude, but there's two kinds of motives for what you do. There's what's called extrinsic motives and intrinsic motives. So extrinsic motives are where you do something to get something else, and intrinsic motives are where you do something just because you inherently want to do it. So if you imagine... If you play the piano one morning because you love playing the piano and it makes you feel good, that's an intrinsic motive. If you play the piano in a dive bar that you hate to make money, that's an extrinsic motive. And what he did is track people to see, if you achieve your intrinsic motives and your extrinsic motives, how much better do you feel? And it turns out, achieving your extrinsic motives, so becoming the boss, getting a better car so you can show off, getting a hotter wife, whatever, Trumpian values, do not make you feel better at all. There is no improvement in your happiness, but following your intrinsic values does lead to a really significant improvement in your happiness in most cases. So it's like, but we live in, as Tim said to me, we live in an environment that is constantly pushing us away from our intrinsic values towards our extrinsic values. It's like, you know, these kind of extrinsic values are like KFC for the soul, right? You think about, you know, just like there's junk food, we all know what junk food has hijacked our diet. It hijacks things that appeal to us, but it contains no nutrition. It's making us sick. In a similar way, we have been pumped full of junk values, and they are making us psychologically sick. I'll give you one very small example and then how we can fix it. There was an experiment in 1978, really simple experiment. You get a load of five-year-olds, and you divide them into two groups. The first group is shown an advert for a toy, a specific toy, and the second group is not shown any adverts. And then at the end, you bring them all together and you say, okay, now you can go and play with another kid. And you're told the, the other kid is, you can play one of two boys. One is a really nice boy, but he doesn't have the toy you've just seen the advert for. And the other is a nasty boy, but he's got that toy you've just seen the advert for. Obviously, the kids who hadn't seen the advert chose the nice boy. The kids who had seen the advert, and this was one advert, chose the nasty boy, right? So what they chose was a lump of plastic over a meaningful human connection. That's one advert. Every single one of you has seen more adverts than that today, more advertising messages. More 18-year-olds can recognise the McDonald's sign by a long way than know their own surname. So we are constantly bombarded with messages that lead us away from this. And Tim Kasser, the guy who did this research, wanted to know exactly what you want to know, Rich, which is, well, what do we do about this? This is such a big thing. There's some external things you can do. Sao Paulo, where I went in Brazil, just banned external advertising. And people talk about how it's cleared their heads. There are th we could have much tighter advertising regulators. So you think, for example, there was an advert here in London, you might remember this controversy last year, of it was some super skinny young woman and it said, are you beach body ready? It was an advert for some kind of protein shake or whatever. The implication being, if you look anything other than like this woman, you've got no place on the beach, right? And people rightly rebelled against that and that advert was banned. So we can have really strict advertising regulators, but obviously I think it goes deeper than that. And one of the things that Tim, the guy who did this, tried was he teamed up with a guy called Nathan Dungan, who I got to interview. And Nathan was a, he was a, it's a funny way into this. He was a financial advisor, and he was brought into schools because these kids, middle-class kids, not rich kids, were demanding so many consumer things, and their parents were like, we just can't afford this shit anymore. So he, he was brought in to basically teach them about budgeting. But actually, he quickly realised, look, you can't, it's like talking to someone who's compulsively eating about nutrition. That's not what they need to hear. You need to figure out why they're doing it, right? And he actually set up these groups with their parents and the kids 
where they could, firstly, they talked about, well, why are you longing for this? What, when, when I was a kid, I used to long for Nike trainers. You could not imagine a kid who was further away from being Magic Johnson than I was, right? This, I was never going to be playing whatever that bouncing ball game is. I can't remember the name of it. Then, you know, <laughs> why did I want them? It's, cause, it's because we'd seen them in ads and we'd, that had created a group dynamic where we fetishized this object. So part of it was thinking about, well, why are you longing for these things? Actually, what I was longing for was belonging and status, not the trainers. The trainers meant fucking nothing to me, right? Um, so he talked about that, and then he would talk about, and this was over several months, your intrinsic values. Okay, what do you actually think is important in life? What actually makes you feel good? And what was interesting is, we just don't have those conversations in our culture, right? We don't have times when we sit together and go, what would actually, when have I actually felt good? Oh yeah, it wasn't when I was spending my time showing off on Twitter or showing off achieving status or, you know, buying a car, whatever. Actually, it was usually in moments of connection, meaning where I was pursuing purpose. And this was studied, this was scientifically studied, this group that Nathan did. Just that experience of sitting over a few months in a few hour long meetings, led to a really significant reduction in these extrinsic values. Now, I think if we start having these conversations, kind of consumerist anonymous conversations, that will then lead to further uh, progress and we'll start to see how this environment we've constructed is making us uh, feel like shit. But even in itself, these were extraordinary pieces of progress. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it does. What I kind of like, I think, about a lot of your work, and I think this book does this, you know, and I'm not an expert on the subject, so, you know, I don't know whether you're 100% right on everything, but I think it's just, it's challenging the anything, you know, I think you should check, you need to challenge everything. There's lots of things we take for granted, so we take for granted uh, that, uh, you know, these the antidepressants work, we take for granted that um, addiction, the drugs are bad and everyone gets addicted to them, you know, and actually when you challenge these things, and think, you know, think, I mean, I, I've always kind of think with the penal system, we all just sort of accept, oh, you do something wrong and you get sent to prison or you get executed and that's your punishment. But, you know, you sort of think, well, is that, the, that, is that working? And the, the, this seems to be a lot of what you're talking about in your other book about, uh, chasing the, about drugs, chasing the scream. Um, uh, it's, you know, we have these ideas about drugs and then we don't actually ever question them. And, and, and actually, obviously, like, the death penalty doesn't stop people murdering people. People are still murdered. The penal system doesn't stop people being criminals. If anything, it makes them worse criminals. And, and making drugs illegal doesn't stop people so, taking drugs. It, it makes them take more drugs. Well, it goes back to what we were saying that doctor said to me in Vietnam, and it was only after I'd learned all this that I understood it, that actually your nausea is a signal we need to listen to. What we've done is we've taken these signs of deep distress that we need to listen to, like depression and addiction, and we've pathologized them. We've said that they're flaws in the individual, when actually they are necessary signals. Now, they are exceptionally painful signals. I'm not saying they're necessary, that people should continue feeling like this, because I certainly don't think that. But they are signals we need to listen. Depressed people are not machines with broken parts. They are animals with unmet needs. You know, Everyone has innate psychological, everyone knows we have innate physical needs, right? You've got to have shelter, you've got to have food, you've got to have water. There's lots of evidence we have innate psychological needs for, you need to feel you belong. You need to feel you have meaning. You need to feel you're doing something worthwhile. You need to feel you've got a secure future. And what's happened is we're living in a culture where increasingly people don't feel, are being deprived of the things of their psychological needs. Not everyone, by all means, but increasingly more people. Now, with some people, that will manifest as depression. Some people, it will manifest as anxiety. Some people, it will manifest as addiction. Some people, it will manifest through things like Donald Trump. And I don't mean this as a, a joke. I spend a lot of my time in the US. Um, I think a lot of these political signals that are being sent. Now, I think the signal, how do I put this? Those people are not wrong to send signals of desperation. If I think about people in Cleveland, where I spent a lot of time in the run-up to the election, uh, or, or, or near Blackpool, where my sister lives, it was one of the hotbeds of voting for Brexit. I think the specific signal they sent is disastrous. I think you don't need me to tell you why Trump and Brexit are a disaster. But they're not wrong to send these desperate signals. What we need to do is think about how we can change our culture so that, we can, so that more people can feel their psychological needs are being met. And that sounds, because like, it goes back to what you said a bit before, Richard. At times I thought this book, is Lost Connections, is just like stupidly obvious, right? If you're really lonely, if you've got work that's meaningless, you're going to feel like shit, is two of, the, two of the nine causes, for example, right? 
And then other times I would think it was like ridiculously radical because I think, well, actually, there are really big change. Now, there are some practical changes that people can make in, at the individual level. And times I thought I was really radical. I would oscillate between thinking it's kind of blindingly obvious and really radical. And it's a weird thing where it's the same with the addiction debate when actually quite obvious things are weirdly radical because we've framed the questions in the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, well, people don't... You know, people accept what they're told about stuff. or you know, And I think once it's gone on long enough, then it becomes... You know, it becomes uh, heretical to question it. You know, so people—if you said we should legalize drugs, or you know, we should we should ha have a system where people are punished in a different way, or or not punished, or you know—but then is people are going to go, no, we can't do that, and the Daily Mail's going to yeah. go, no, we can't do that. But so it's very hard to overturn those things. But you know, I don't think it is that hard in one sense. Firstly, I think for everyone who's depressed by these factors, these nine factors, there are far more people who are being made unhappy by them, right? It's, it, we rightly, there's a distinction between depression and unhappiness, but it's like the distinction between falling over in the street and falling off a building. It's they're on a continuum, they're different, yeah. but they're on a continuum. Um, but you know, I tell the story in the book of uh, one of the most amazing people I know, and I think this is one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. Because I, I'm gay, I didn't hear the concept of gay marriage until I was 20. I'm, tw I'm 38 now. I'll be 39 by the time this podcast goes out. Um, <laughs> I recently showed my, one of my nephews, who's 17, the front pages of The Sun from when I was his age. Things like when there was the first gay kiss in EastEnders, it said it's EastBenders. Um, the, the just extreme homophobia. And he literally didn't believe what he was seeing. He said, did people phone the police? Today, if the craziest UKIP candidate tweeted what was on the front page of the best-selling newspaper in Britain 20 years ago, he would have to resign, right? And I tell the story of Andrew Sullivan, who in 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. And he was a leading American, British-American journalist, and his first thought was, I deserve this. He'd been raised in the kind of homophobic environment everyone was raised in at that point. And he went to Provincetown, which is a kind of gay town in, in Cape Cod, to die. And he thought it was the last thing, people were dying all around him, this is before the invention of protease inhibitors. And he said, okay, as my last gesture, I'm gonna write a book arguing something really crazy. I'm gonna argue that gay people should be allowed to get married, right? It was the first book that had ever said this, it's called Virtually Normal, it's an amazing book. And I was with Andrew, I remember, <laughs> I said, when I get depressed, I try to imagine going back in time, whatever it is, 25 years, a bit more than that, and saying to him, okay, Andrew, you're not gonna believe me, 25 years from now, you're gonna be alive, good news. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States, when it's finding that gay marriage should be, is, is legally required to be introduced nationally, is gonna quote this book, and I'm gonna be with you when you get a call from the White House, uh, where the president is gonna invite you to celebrate that night, and the White House will be lit up in the rainbow colors. And by the way, that president is gonna be black, right? It would have sounded like the most insane science fiction. That happened, right? It, came to pass. Now, history can go into regression as well as you may have noticed from watching the news. Um, <laughs> terrible things can happen and great things can happen. The difference is whether we fight for them, right? And all this energy that we're currently spending, pathologizing it, saying to people, you know what, you feel like shit. Tanya, who uh, is one of the women at Cotty, the woman who wore the miniskirts, she said to me, in our culture, you're made to feel that it's just you who feels this way and you're all alone. And what I realized in this protest is I'm surrounded by people who feel the same as me. You come out of your corner crying and you fight and you realize how strong you are. Now those people in Cotty could have stayed in their homes and they would have been evicted one by one and they could have taken antidepressants and told themselves, there's something wrong with my brain that I feel so shit. They didn't, they banded together and they didn't need to be drugged, they needed to be together. You know, I was in, one other thing, I, was, I remember I was in, in the run-up to the US election, I was in Cleveland, as I say. Don't know if anyone's been to Cleveland. It's like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins. It's horrendous. And I was uh, reporting on this group who were doing this interesting work trying to get out the vote against Trump. And we were on this long street in a place called Slavic City. I don't know why it's called that. It's not Slavic. It must have been at some point. And it was one of those streets where a third of the houses had been demolished, a third were abandoned, and a third still had people living in them literally behind barbed wire. And we knocked on one door, and there was a woman who I discovered from talking to her was the same age as me. I would genuinely have guessed she was 60 by looking at her. She'd had a really hard life. She was actually quite intelligent, extremely angry, uh, really angry. And she was describing what happened to the area. It had been a kind of industrial area. All the jobs had gone. And she, she made this verbal slip. She was describing what the area used to be like. 
for her parents and grandparents. And she meant to say, when I was young. What she actually said is, when I was alive. And it really, I felt like a punch when she said that, to realise that is how a lot of people in our culture feel. And they're not wrong to feel it. They've been deprived of the things that make life meaningful. And the tragedy was to realise, coming out of there with uh, one of the guys who I was reporting on, um, and just looking down the street and just seeing all these people hiding behind barbed wire and realising what you need is right around you, right? It's, it's what happened at Cotty. It's, it's this rediscovery of meaning and purpose. And it's actually an incredible victory for the system we live under to separate us from such obvious things, to separate us from our most basic impulses, to band together, to find meaning together, to build homes together. Um, so in some ways I feel optimistic because firstly the crisis is really deep and the crisis is manifesting in all sorts of ways. Think about the fact that, I don't mean this as a joke, it might sound like a joke, think about the fact that a man as obviously sick as Donald Trump, as obviously unwell and so profoundly unhappy, can be the most powerful person in the world and can be chosen by a lot of the people on that street in Cleveland. They can look at him and think, yes, I admire this man. This man who, 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 who spends his whole life dedicated towards humiliating other people, asserting his status over them, and accumulating meaningless golden baubles. Um, this is a sign of how deep this, this, this crisis goes. But if we don't think about these deep questions, and we don't see that this pain is legitimate, we're not going to begin to solve it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's very interesting, and I think and I think um, you know I th it it does obviously the, these points in human history where things have got ridiculously unfair, and I don't think there's been a point where I mean you'd quote in the book that the richest person in America has more money than where the eight percent of America and the eight billionaires in America have more wealth than half the world? Is it something like it's that? It's something like the, the most shocking figure to me is the six heirs to the Walmart fortune, who are heirs, they've done literally nothing <laughs> to earn it, have more money than the bottom 100 million Americans, mm. right? And actually, we're, we're, we're this one of the most unequal... We can't feel smug when we look at the Americans because we're very close behind sure, them on the sure. inequality. But, you know, that sort of unfairness eventually something happens and it breaks you know I, I, I always look at the Russian revolution where it was exactly that where there was these incredibly wealthy people who didn't even really understand you know what it was like to be poor that they could have big balls while people were you know starving in the streets and they didn't even think about it and then the people in the streets went hold on this isn't right you know there's a very few people and you know, holding that wealth and then it's not going to it's not going to be sustainable, I don't think. Well, if you think about historic uh, analogy, there's one in the history of this city, actually. It relates more to addiction, but I think it's, they're, they're tightly related. Um, I think I talk about this in Chasing the Scream, my previous book, about the war on drugs. So, in the 18th century, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting, it was the beginning of industrialization or a key stepping up of industrialization. Driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums here in London and in Liverpool, places like Shoreditch, if only they could see it now. Um, and... and um, and, and th this thing happened, there was an outbreak of mass alcoholism. It was called the gin craze. And it's hard to tell historically, but it does seem there's pretty good evidence there really was a mass outbreak of alcoholism, right? There's a famous painting by Hogarth of a, uh, called Gin Lane of a mother downing a bottle of gin while her baby falls off a wall, right? And if you look at what people said at the time, what they said was, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it does to people. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, uh, this problem would go away. Now, when we look back, we know it can't be that because there's a bar over there that sells gin and you could all be drinking it and none of your babies are, you know, crawling out the window while you lie. Of course, we have some alcoholism, but we don't have mass alcoholism. What changed is not the availability of the drug. You could all buy gin now. What changed is the amount of pain in the society. Those people have been deprived of everything that gives life meaning. And that's why there was an addiction outbreak. In a similar way, look at these pathologies we're seeing. Look at the United States. Average white male life expectancy has fallen for the first time since the Civil War. We're not far behind, right? You, everywhere where there's an addiction crisis, there's also a suicide crisis, a depression crisis. Um, in the US, a, a homicide crisis. These things are densely interconnected. The core of addiction is not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. There's lots of evidence about this. Everywhere I went for Chasing the Screen, where they had dedicated their resources not to fucking people's lives up, putting them in prison, but turning their lives around, like Portugal and Switzerland, beat their addiction crisis, massively reduced their addiction problems. And Portugal has made, is, is Portugal made 
drugs legal or no no longer illegal? Is that what they've... they've... So it's the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. Yeah. Decriminalisation is where you stop punishing users, but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drug. Legalisation is where you open up some legal route to get your drug. Yeah. So what Portugal did is they had, in the year 2000, they had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is incredible. And every year they tried the American way, the way that we're following more, they arrested more people, they imprisoned more people. Every year the problem got worse. And one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they were like, fuck, we can't carry on like this, what are we going to do? So they decided to do something really radical, something no one had done for 70 years anywhere in the world. They said, should we like ask some scientists what we should do? So they put together this panel of scientists led by this amazing man I got to know called Dr. Huang Gulao, who went away, they looked at all the best evidence, and they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to crack, everything, but, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on punishing people and spend it instead on very practically turning their lives around. So they set up a big programme of loans so people with addiction problems could set up and run small businesses and be their own boss. They set up a big programme of uh, job subsidies. So say you used to be a mechanic, they go to a garage and they say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The results of this are really clear. The biggest studies in the British Journal of Criminology, but I saw this myself in Portugal, 13 years on, Injecting drug use was down by 50%. Overdose deaths were down by 80%. Virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. Everywhere, so the, one of the key lessons of this for depression, for lost connections, and, and more generally, is one of the best things you can do for people's distress is change our collective environment. And I think part of the problem with the debate about depression up to now is we've put all the onus on the depressed person. You've got to change. You've got to make it right. Now, there are things depressed people can do, but we don't do that with car accidents. We don't say to people who've just been mauled in a car accident, you know, it's your job to make sure people wear a seatbelt anymore. It's all our jobs to make sure everyone wears a seatbelt. It's all our job to, to police the speed limit and do all these things. Um, in the same way, partly for ourselves, because these things that are causing depression in some people are causing unhappiness in most of us, but also for them, it's all our job to change our environment so that we are more connected to the things that give life meaning and, and we have a culture that people want to be present in. Yeah, great. It's, um, yeah, well, it's all, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. Both the books, I think, are very interesting. And there's a, there's a great, you did a great TED talk about um, addiction as well, which is available online. I have this problem. Whenever I try to explain anything to my nephew now, he goes, Johan, you're doing your TED talk voice. <laughs> I just will not listen to anything I say. So, uh, but, you know, that's, if, if, people, if people want to kind of catch up on this stuff, that's a, that's a good way of, uh, that's a good starting point, the, the TED talk. But the book is uh, out on the 11th of January. Oh, yeah, my publisher reads, tells me off if I don't on, say. It really says on the back. <laughs> They can't see it. It's called uh, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And um, if you're interested in any of the people that I've been talking about, you can hear loads of audio of interviews with them at the book's website, which is thelostconnections.com. You can also take a quiz there to see how much you know about the real facts about depression and anxiety. Cool. And, uh, you, know, it's... you can also get the audio book as well, they tell me. <laughs> You've been the least funny guest I've ever had on here. <laughs> um... But it's good. I, you, you know, you went through. I don't want to dwell on it, but you obviously a few years ago went through a bit of a tough time, and, and it's kind of. In, but it's really interesting to see you of your own making in in many ways. But you you've sort of you know managed to bounce back, and I like I like that. I like the fact that what I don't like about society is the way that someone makes a mistake and then that's it. You know what I mean? I think it's good to be able to get uh, second chances and everything. So I'm glad that you're... Uh, this is a really brilliantly written book and I'm, I'm glad you're back uh, writing. Not that you've been away, really, but I'm glad you're back. And thank you very much for... Uh, Thanks, Rich. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, Johan Hari! <laughs> you have been listening to Richard Herring's Aston Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Johan Hari. The music's by Pess. I like to thank people at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's lots of them here working hard. Uh, the people at Go Faster Strike. It's mainly Chris Evans on that one. And his crew of idiots who film it. They don't, they're not concerned you. You're listening on the audio. And also, Deborah the British Comedy Guide and iTunes and Vimeo. Uh, the producer of the show is Ben Walker. I am called Richard Herring. This is a fuzz. Go Faster Strike and Sky Potato production. Thank you.